Listen up. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the podcast participants and not to any participant's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. You know, for fun. So lighten up and enjoy. Stomping Jen. I have a mouthful of cookies. I know you do. (laughs) Always you have a mouthful of cookies. And I will point out you are eating the cookie that I made for you for Valentine's Day that Mm -hmm. says J and B, that's my government name, B, forever. Uh Uh-huh, it's true. The most romantic gift ever. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I digress. Mm Mm-hmm. On this show, we are going to be talking to Molly Hatch. She is an artist who creates tableware, home goods, stationery, and gifts designed to make the familiar new again. Right? She describes this as being somewhere (laughs) between whimsical and traditional, right? As where we feel at home. That's the aesthetic that she works in, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm honored that she's here with us. Let me tell you why. Her work and her designs. You're doing the whole intro. I'm doing a real intro here. Are found. You didn't even start the music. I'm not. I'm just doing an intro. All right. Her <laughs> designs and her work are found in places such as Target, Home Goods, Macy's. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they have been seen on the great. British baking That's show. That's the most important part, I think. <laughs> and her work has been featured in museums and galleries. Yes. I am super excited. You know I love talking to artists, mm-hmm. so I cannot wait to begin talking to Molly, which we will do after the music. Great. <laughs> Creamy, delicious ideas without the creepy truck. Okay. Stomping Jen. I think that was the longest intro you've ever done. Yes. (laughs) We have new intro music and a new style of intro. I will be doing longer intros. Alrighty. Yes. um, But... Without further ado, let us say hello to Molly Hatch. Hi, Molly. Hi. Thank you <laughs> for, for having me. Yes, thank you for being here. I know that was a lot, that intro. Um, <laughs> it went on and on. And on. Yes, sorry. No, it's always good. It's good. I, you know, I come with you know, pomp and circumstance here. It's That's like- right. Our, our, listen- <laughs> our listeners will know and attest to the fact that I do like to go on. So um, mm-hmm. thank you for bearing with it. Um, now, oftentimes, I don't do a great job at describing our guests, so we always like to start um, by saying, tell us whatever you want to about yourself. Um, who are you? Why are you here? Why are you talking to us? 
Um, well, I, I, I'm here on, at the behest of Jen, but I'm excited to be here um, to introduce your listeners to, to me and what I do. Um, even though it's visual, we're going to do it um, through talking. So that's always exciting to explain yourself as an artist, a visual person um, uh, in words. But uh, I'm an artist and designer. I live in Western Massachusetts in Florence. And um, I have been doing this uh, it, mostly with the tableware focus and functional ceramic focus, making pots since I was in college, but I've always been an art minded person. And um, my parent, my mother was a painter. My grandmother was a painter. Um, my great grandmother was a painter. So there's a long line of family artists, um, though I'm the first one to really make a living off of it in that long line of folks and have my master's degree and have been a professor and to ride the, I sort of ride the, the two part, two different parts of my career, which are one as a fine artist selling through the art, fine art market and galleries, as you mentioned, museums and galleries and art collectors. And then I have this brand that's self-named as Molly Hatch that sells through large retailers and boutique stores and it's everything from tableware to homewares and gift and then you know sort of everything between greeting cards I mean you name it I'm kind of got my hands and in doing it um and I'd say the one thing that connects all of that is the fact that I love painting and drawing so I'd say that at the core of everything that I do um painting and drawing and surface surface design in general is is sort of the main focus of my work and there's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek I have fun with what I do and sometimes it's a little ironic and sometimes it's more serious but um you know I'm here to have fun well thank you for that and I have lots of questions for you kind of about um your designs and your design aesthetic but kind of where I want to start is when I was preparing for our conversation I had to question myself like do I even know what ceramics is right and could you tell people what what that is who might not know, who might have an idea about what it is? Sure. I mean, a lot of people describe themselves as ceramists or ceramicists, or you'll hear people talk about being a studio potter or a potter. Um, I describe myself as an artist designer because I'm working more commercially with my designs instead of making them all by hand. So I think there's there are lots of different categories that ceramics can kind of fall into, everything from fine art and sculpture to design and utility. And so I think it's just one more material out there. And so people who are committed to ceramics typically have some fondness for utility on some level. Like there's a hist such a long history. It's like the oldest material that we can study because it's last so long it, it, even though it's so fragile it's one of the longest lasting and unchanging materials out there which is really fascinating and exciting um and to it's be part of such a and it's clay right ceramics yeah, is so is taking clay right and making yep. stuff out of it yep basically and it can be as simple as going in your backyard if you're in a clay rich area and digging it out of the ground and using it or buying materials that are mind and preparing to a recipe and making it that way but yeah ceramics is kind of all-encompassing where we and it's even used in like military applications like mm. uh, armor and warheads and other things so mm. i didn't know that 
it's like the hardest material you can get. Hmm. That is interesting. Um, Do we, just as I'm curious, in New England where we live, are we in a clay-rich area? Mm -hmm. Could we We go out? Yep. Um, In fact, there's an old brick factory in Maine called Watershed. It's now the Watershed Center for the Arts, but they're, you know, factories made bricks around here um, and Massachusetts and New England in general. We have a very red clay it looks green so even if you're like in the banks of the connecticut and it looks it's sort of slippery and slimy and um it almost looks green and that's usually a clay um deposit in it's it's clay is literally rotting rock it's like little particles of rock that have broken down into even smaller particles and so you're you're actually working with rock when you're rotten rock if you will when you're working with clay um but it's just tiny little particles suspended in water so you can actually play around with clay that you find and dig out of the ground um all through new england i mean there are different veins of different kinds of clay all throughout the world but the the white porcelain that we like to use and eat off of typically comes from um, veins of it in china and england um, there's a long sorted history of, of ceramics, um, being at one point it was worth more than gold porcelain was because it was so rare. Um, and it was only found in China, but then they found it in Europe and Germany in the 1700s. And that changed things a little bit. So hmm. the, 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 the history of clay is, I feel like there should be a movie. I should like write a script. That's yeah. Yeah. This should be my next thing that I do. That sounds was, that was fascinating. Yeah, I had it, no idea it about sounds, anything you just said. It sounds expansive and deep to me. Like there, there's a lot yeah. there. Um, if you want to read a book, and or it's like a kind of a sordid tale too. The Alchemist, and I'm forgetting the author's name. It's a woman's name. It's all about like. I mean, there was like indentured servitude and people claiming to have the alchemy for gold and getting themselves out of trouble with Alexander the Great by coming up with porcelain to save their butt. And there was lots of like (laughs) amazing adventures and people, espionage and all kinds of crazy stuff. The history of ceramics is is fraught with all kinds of drama. That's Hmm. crazy. Now, (laughs) you have a... You mentioned this, you have an education in ceramics and drawing and an MBA, or not an MBA, a um, master's degree. MFA, um, how, MFA right? MFA? Yes. yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Um, Stomping Jen is the, yeah, you're the one with the MBA. That's right. I'm getting confused. Right. Um, why did you want to study ceramics and painting? What, what, what drove you to want to study these things in an academic uh, setting? Um, well, I think... I went to art school. Um, so I went, I went, I was in the top 10% of my graduating high school class. I was a smarty pants, um, I guess. And I exhausted the curriculum at my local high school and was able to take classes at Dartmouth college for free. I grew up in Vermont and it was not far from Dartmouth. And, and so I did a semester or semester's worth throughout a year at Dartmouth of college credit. And I realized that I didn't want to go to a normal liberal arts school or an Ivy league school. I really wanted to study. It just sort of solidified my interest in art, but I knew that I wanted to get a good education academically sort of liberal arts education on top of that. I didn't want to just have a good uh, art education and often art schools are so focused on art that they sort of leave the 
history and sort of writing and other parts of it to the wayside, they tend to be a weaker component of the education you're getting. And so I applied to all these different schools like Reed College in Portland, Oregon, and um, RISD has a great program with Brown and the Rhode Island School of Design. In um, Providence, they have a great program with Brown um, where you can take classes there. And then I found out that the museum school and Tufts University have a, an exchange program as well. And I applied to a bunch of different art schools. And um, I also applied to like Smith College and a bunch of other schools. And the only school that gave me money to go was the museum school in Boston. <laughs> so it's <was laughs> like, oh, maybe I should go there. Yeah. <laughs> like, go where it's, sort of where like, it's less expensive. Yeah. Right. The universe telling me, um, hey, over there is probably a good idea. So I, I did that for undergrad and I got my degree from Tufts, actually. It's not the museum school wasn't accredited. And since then, um, Tufts University has purchased the school and it's become the art school of Tufts University more officially rather than just through like a, a I had to apply to the museum school and then apply to Tufts to get in. And it was sort of a backdoor entry, if you will. Um. And so when I left school, I, you know, there's the museum school is weird. It's like a, no, you didn't have to declare a major. You didn't have to, you had no requirements for classes except for a few academic ones. Like you had to take a certain amount of art history and you had to follow through on a certain number of like English classes. And you had to take a certain number of academic classes at Tufts to get your degree. But as far and a certain number of studio credits every semester, but there was no attendance. There was no there were no grades. You just showed up at the end of the semester and showed all the artwork you had made to a panel or committee of um, six or seven people, like a few faculty and a few students. And they would give you a, what was a, called a portfolio review. And it was like a pass fail. And then you kind of got through this. So what it, what it really did was train you as a studio artist. It trained you to want to go to class on your own, for your own, of your own volition, basically. Mm -hmm. And like not necessarily need the grades or the approval of the, faculty to go it was more about what got you there in, of your own interest to go so that was that was really great because when I left school there's no one there like telling you to go to the studio and make work you have to want to go on your own was that hard for you as somebody who was an academic kind of high achiever and superstar like coming into this that lack of structure was that hard for you that first year was really hard, but then I dated a musician, a jazz musician. He was a guitarist. Um, and he was amazing, um, at getting into the studio and doing his own work, um, and practicing. And it was that discipline of practice, I think that kind of kicked me into high gear on my own and made me want to sort of step up and realize that if I was going to do this, I had to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, also, he was like never home because he was always at gigs at night. So <laughs> I was like, what, am I, what else am I going to do but make work, right? So I worked and he played. And sometimes I'd go and listen to him play or we'd go see shows together. But um, I think that was that really that figuring that out was a big key part of figuring like that own my own personal drive to make um, was really key. So I, I left school and worked for a potter in Vermont. Um, Miranda Thomas. And I thought I wanted to be a studio potter. I sort of came to clay late in undergrad and I was doing a lot of drawing and painting. And then I figured out I could do the drawing and painting on the clay mm -hmm. that I was making. And it was like, oh my God, here it is. This is the perfect thing. 
And so I worked for the studio potter working at the wheel 40 hours a week throwing pots. And then I had a wheel in my kitchen and I would make things on my own at home in the evening. And it was like, I don't know, probably nine months in, I realized, oh my God, you know, like I'm not built for like, I'm already physically seeing damage on my body and I'm only like 22. So I was like, how, how am I going to do this for the rest of my life? Like, damage, I don't know if I can... damage from working like, with the clay. Yeah, my wrists were going numb. I mean, you're sitting there working with pots. Like I was throwing 40 or 60 pots a day, mugs mm-hmm. a day, and then finishing them all the way through. And you're just, it's so hard physically on your body. And I was so young that I knew, I mean, I, if I knew now, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I, like 43, 42 or whatever I am, it's like, okay, yeah, like I, there was no chance in hell I was going to be able to follow through. I think about the punishment we put our bodies through as younger people, like in our 20s, and that, mm-hmm. that, that you found that challenging. I can only imagine how difficult that work is physically. Yeah. And now, I mean, I realized I had to sort of step it up and get in shape. So I started Mm -hmm. running and I started, you know, doing a lot of yoga and things like that to try to help offset um, what was going on. Because I was already showing signs of like carpal tunnel, even Mm -hmm. though I was only, you know, 22. So it was like, whoa, okay, what's it going to be like 20 years from now? But also I was realizing the repetition was super boring. Like I was getting myself in trouble in the evenings, like drinking a little too much and like partying a lot and kind of, you know, that first year out of college is a little rough anyway, but it was like, huh, like if I'm already bored, like, what am I going to be like 20 years from now again? Mm -hmm. Like, like I have other things that I need to think about, like repeating myself over and over isn't satisfying. Setting aside other things. Yeah. I mean, setting aside those challenges with, with working with a medium, was there anything that you found especially appealing about clay and like working with it as an artistic medium. I'm really curious about that. Yeah. I think it's the the learning curve is high. Like it was, it was clear to me that it was going to be a skill. There was like a clear progression of skill acquired over time. So in painting, it felt very like subjective. It wasn't, it, it wasn't like, clear to me what the point like I was like okay great so you're putting this painting on the wall and people are going to look at it and I just didn't know what I wanted to say quite yet and I wasn't really sure I hadn't really found my own voice artistically and so I knew that drawing was something that everything could kind of tie back to no matter what I did so I just Mm -hmm. got into the practice of drawing and sort of doing it without worrying about that conceptual part and I think it was when I realized that I could do drawing and painting and put it in someone's hands and it, it would become sort of a subversive way or less precious or at, least, at the very least at the end of the day, you could use a mug, like forget what's on it. Like you, there's a function and a use for it and a place for it in the world as a functional sort of yeah. object. And at the very core of that, everyone knows how to relate to it. And so I think that's something that's carried over into my work for sure. And I think that that's really important. It's really hard to um, sort of get out of the way of the pretension and sort of academic hangovers that come with art and what you're supposed to know. You think you're supposed to know looking Mm -hmm. at it. And I think that clay was so grounding and humbling and that it, it, you know, 
putting my artwork there and taking it off the wall and actually literally putting it in someone's mouth was like really exciting. Yeah. I have a, I have a theory about you. Can I share it with you? I've been, (laughs) I've been, I've been reading and thinking about you and here's a theory. Here's a theory I came up with stomping Jen. Now listen, you mentioned to us already, you come from a long line of painters. Your bio also mentions that, um, I think one of your parents was a dairy farmer. Mm-hmm. Okay. So here's my theory. Okay. Farmers work with the earth, right? To create life and food. Okay. A lot of your work uses clay, which comes from the earth as well. And you create these beautifully painted vessels to bring, um, an ability to people to carry food, serve food to themselves. And you've connected that with painting. I think this somehow is some kind of unifying artistic theory that brings together the crafts of um, both of your, both of your parents. That's so interesting for you to put it like that. I've never really thought about it in that, particular way but i think i've been dancing around that <laughs> thinking for a long time but you just said it better than i've ever said it um and thank you for that it's kind of that's it's so if that's what i've been working on shit that's really beautiful <laughs> like, yeah no so, it, and i thought it i I'm, I'm i'm relieved that you find it beautiful because i did too i was really like trying to think deeply about that and that like really well, stood out to me let me explain why I think that's beautiful is because one of the biggest hardships in my parents, uh, they, my parents got together when my mother was 19 at RISD as a painting student mm-hmm. and she totally fell in love with my dad. And he is, he rejected a lot. Of, he was a classic, like seventies, sixties and seventies hippie back to the earth hippie who, rejected his middle-class upbringing for a back-to-the-earth life. But he did it with a lot more purpose and interest in, like, political interest and changing things, really. And so my parents, my mom knew by marrying my dad, even at 19, that she was signing up for a life of farming. And what that, she was also rejecting her upper-class upbringing for this sort of like, you know, out of left field, uh, back to the land decision. And so they, they became organic dairy farmers at a time when it was really not hip or cool or anything yet. It was Mm -hmm. still very much in its infancy. And then they, my mother was the Vermont organic farming association president for eight years. They were incredibly politically involved in getting legislature passed for certifications and, became like led by example by going through the process of getting certified. And I mean, it was, it's just really amazing. So my mom really set aside her passion for painting and um, in order to prioritize their farming life. But my mom is interesting because she helped me redefine my understanding of success as an artist, because while I have financial success and accolades and articles and interviews and whatever, I mean, museum collections, 
I honestly feel like in a lot of ways, the people who continue to have an art practice, regardless of the accolades and the financial rewards and the outside interest and that they're really making the work because they need to and are compelled to, regardless of what the rest of the world's experience of that is, Mm -hmm. is so much more true studio art practice than, um, like I have this feedback loop, right? Like there's this positive reinforcement all the time. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of like negative as well, but like there's plenty <laughs> of positive reinforcement, especially with the paychecks that I receive to continue. And every time I question it, some, some big opportunity, like I might be thinking, Oh gosh, you know, like, I'm not sure I can do this anymore. And then, you know, like some museums curator calls and it's like, we'd really like a piece for blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, Oh, I guess that's another sign from the universe that I need to continue doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you know, my mom doesn't have that, but she's in her sixties and she's still drawing and painting because she needs to and wants to and finds immense pleasure in it. And I think again, like my musician ex-boyfriend, the discipline and need to continue is such a driving force that it it's sort of inspiring. And I hope that I still would want to make my work or some kind of work or some kind of creates creative practice outside of that positive reinforcement that yeah. I was talking about. And yeah. so to marry those two. And so, so for me, my dad never understood the art part. He was really frustrated by it actually. And he felt he's given her moments along the way of like, here's three years, go make your work. Um, and I'll help you, you know, he wanted her to commercialize it or, or monetize it. And it just never worked because she never really had enough time. It doesn't happen in three years. Um, but she tried and, you know, it was just like, it's never been quite as successful as you would want it to be. And I think for me seeing my, so my dad gets it suddenly he's watched me lecture about my work. He's sort of figured out some some he understands what a plate is what a mug is and he values those things and I so I think it was a way like you for me to put those two things together and say see here like how does that value yeah I mean but you just you just tied a bow around it in a way that I never I'm like I need to I need to quote you or something at some point because that was so good you heard it here on the soft serve podcast how does it how does it feel to be lecturing and your dad sitting there in the audience listening to you more nerve-wracking than any like does if if he can if i can do this in front of so we went to the archie bray which is a ceramic residency program out in montana that was um really fun. We went for a month as a whole family. My dad just so happened to long story short, he was there with us for a period of time and he, I'm lecturing to the ceramic community. So it's sort of like preaching to the choir a little bit. Like you, you're taught, people understand your process. They already know about the history of the material. They're, you know, art ver- well versed in art speak and they kind of understand what you're talking about. And then there's my dad <laughs> like, yeah, who's there, who's there listening and, um, he had never heard me lecture and he, I think it was the combination of my confidence, the broad history of what I'd been doing, the continuity of thinking through it all and the like rapture of the audience, right? You have this like group of 150 people listening to your daughter, like, Oh shit, maybe she does actually know what she's doing. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe there's something to this whole thing. And he really Mm -hmm. like listened and, 
paid attention. And I think it was never going to happen if I like sat down and did the same lecture for my family in their living room, like it wouldn't have had the same effect. Um, And then hearing people ask questions or like, you know, follow up afterwards was equally exciting and important for him. And so I think after that, he had a little more reverence and um, respect for what I was doing. Um, I see that as, I see that as an incredibly brave thing to be able to do. Like, I don't think my, my surviving parent has ever heard this podcast. I've never really told him about it or because like, it would make me nervous (laughs) Mm -hmm. that he would listen to it or to be evaluated by my parents. So like, I think it's incredibly brave to like stand up in front of your parents and say that he, you know, here I am as a fully formed professional and person in this world. And now you can sit there and listen to what I have to say. And and I um, imagine as a parent, and, and I'm saying like, I imagine as a parent, that will be a thing I will hope I will look forward to. Like, I just. Uh, like, likewise. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. And I, and I hope, I mean, my daughter is incredibly interested in, in art and making and designing and, has often said, I'm going to take over your business for you or, you know, things like that. And I'm like, gosh, I hope I haven't created too big shoes to fill yeah. like too much pressure to follow in her own way and to do her own thing. Cause that would suck. Yeah. That would be really, I would hate that feeling, Yeah, but you know, it's interesting you say that too, because I think like my dad told me when I was looking at schools, you know, he actually paid for, they paid for the tuition. I got a 50% scholarship. Um, they paid for the rest of the tuition. I had to pay for my room and board. I had to get a job. And um, I worked at Whole Foods in Boston. Yeah. <laughs> like, paid the bills um, so I could live there. But he said, you know, you're not going to make any money. Like, you know, this is a career where you're not going to make a living. I just want you to know that. Mm-hmm. And it was like someone lighting the biggest fire under my ass to yeah. prove him wrong, you know? Like, and so I was like, well, damn, if I'm going to make a living at this, watch. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So I knew all along, and I think that was actually a major moment when he heard me lecture to, to have him see that I had, he was like, oh, she's doing it and she is paying the bills. And in fact, she's the breadwinner in her family at that time I was. And Mm -hmm. oh, okay. Well, maybe she did. Maybe she can make money at this. And it took me being, you know, almost 40 for him to realize that maybe this was actually a career that was worth pursuing, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but it was like vindicating and a, a moment of pride for sure. That's beautiful. And I was thinking a few minutes ago, a little bit when you were talking about the positive feedback reinforcement loop and like kind of in relation to creativity. And I I had wanted to ask you, like, how do you step outside of that to kind of recenter yourself when it comes to your artistic spirit, you know, and, and do you have any insight into that? You know, I think it's really challenging. I, I think you have this, you have professors who spend a lot of their time teaching art who look at people like me and and have said to me point blank, like you're living the dream. And it's like, well, so what energy and time you spend, you know, teaching or artists, you know, the young artists that you're bringing up in your university environment, I'm spending, you know, working on commissions for clients who ask for my work to match their couch. And 
you know, that's fine and good. And I can, it's, it's like a, I have to, I think of everything as a collaboration because I just, Mm -hmm. it's not just my work. Like it's very rare that I have the opportunity to make work for myself. Um, yeah. And when I do, it usually goes really well. Like people respond to it and they're really excited about it. But then they make commissions off of it because it's not quite right for their living room or whatever. (laughs) So, you know, it's funny because like a lot of the work that I make that's personal for the gallery that that initially shown at like an art fair or um, in an exhibition at the gallery. That first time it gets seen, it's, you know, it's like well received and everything, but rarely does that stuff sell. Actually, it's Mm -hmm. usually commissions made off of that. Um, it does sell, but it's not, it's, it's amazing how much more sells when it's sort of related and people mm-hmm. want this custom thing that they've had some, there's an inner designer and everyone, and they want to sprinkle their little mm-hmm. like bit on there yeah. and that's all fine and good, but it's like, okay, maybe I make three or two of those pieces a year and everything else is really, you know, sort of grounded in, mm-hmm. um, you know, other, and so it's rare that I have an opportunity to try something new without any repercussion. So it's really important. This is where I like pitch for art funding to happen. And like, so glad that the NEA is like being reinstated by the Biden administration because. Let's just get this a. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Without grants and like money that is on without strings. Usually there's some strings, but it's not, necessarily conceptually tied it's just like carte blanche support Mm -hmm. um you i wouldn't have had like i've gotten grants to go and um be in a residency like at the archie bray and i spent that time developing some ideas around new forms that i wouldn't have taken the time to do um and explore new ideas i'm working on a grant funded project right now for a show in philadelphia in the fall and again it's like there's so much funding for it that it's like, oh, you have a $5,000 material budget. Do you want to make molds? Do you want to buy gold? Do you want to, like, it's sort of like you get to do whatever and there's no, like, you have to earn that back. It's just, we're going to pay for it. And it's like, oh, what would I do with that? Okay. I have to, you know, kind of think about it. And so it, it gives you this room to create without those other strings or responsibilities. And then inevitably that feeds into what you do get paid for by right. clients or museums or whatever. And yeah. so that's, it's really important. But I, I think my men- mental approach of thinking about my work as a collaboration, whether it's design work or artwork being sold through the fine art market in my gallery in New York, it's like all of it is a collaboration. It's a collaboration with the marketplace. It's a collaboration with the museum. It's a collaboration with, you know, target (laughs) their customer and what their customer wants or you know whatever so it's it's like me maintaining some kind of aspect or identity in that is the hardest part so I think it's like being super super clear about why I'm making things and what the point is and what what it is about understanding what it is about my work that makes it mine versus someone Mm -hmm. else's is the thing that um is allowing me to maintain a strong sense of identity, even when I'm doing things across materials and categories. Thinking about um, those things that make your work uniquely yours, like what 
the Molly Hatch aesthetic. Like, take us back kind of to the the early years when that was beginning to develop. Like, how did that begin to emerge for you out of that pottery student uh, studio in Vermont? Like, when? How did you begin that transition into developing your own aesthetic? Um. I, I mean, I think it's a really slow thing, but I think it was really in graduate school, to be honest with you. I think figuring out that I needed to do drawings on pots, and that was a big moment for me and a motivator, realizing that that was a a thing that really got me into the studio and got me excited about making work, um, and that the surface part component was really important. Um, and that I discovered in undergrad and, um, I really have one, uh, one professor, Kathy King, who's now running the the program at Harvard. Actually, she came in just out of graduate school herself and sort of had this like Betty Page hairdo and like tattoos and like biker boots. And she like busted into this like male dominated department and was like this lady, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and I was like, wow, you know, she is like. 100% 100% woman hear me roar and I was like so into it and I was like I want to whatever she's got going on I want some of that <laughs> um and she's still a friend and I think of her as like a watershed person because she really just like kind of showed me some things that I hadn't no one had really showed me about how to you know do my drawings on my pots she was doing a lot of narrative pottery so I think it was in graduate school when I was really pushed by the department that I was in at the University of Colorado, where I got my master's degree, was really sculpturally focused and not functional pottery focused at all. And there was this constant question about why I was making things functional and not making them sculptural only. And I think I just had to assert myself so many times and really dig my heels in and say this is so important to me because and and really figure out how to aesthetically assert that as well um so many times that it became my aesthetic was Mm. like why pots why pots are important (laughs) um like to the point where my graduate thesis show was framing functional pots like Mm -hmm. I put frames around them (laughs) so So, I was like they're important like a painting see (laughs) were they were they pushing back on you making functional pieces for like some specific reason was it because it pardon me I don't know kind of um the um the intellectual exchanges in that world is it was it not high-minded enough or was it right I mean I think that the academic thing is that like clay as a sculptural material is elevated when it's put into like the sculptural context because sculpture is valued more than functional pottery in the art fine art context and that's like the fine art context is where you want to be apparently I don't um and I was like why can't plates be valued like paintings they have been valued like paintings historically like at that time when when porcelain was worth more than gold people would have their portraits done on porcelain because it was like having your portrait done on gold it was like you know this insanely coveted valued thing and I was like I don't understand why functional pots can't be viewed as valuable as a painting. And so I'm literally making plates that are paintings now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's you, stuck, you saw them, you know? right? Like, did yeah, I did. I did. And I had a, I had a question incredible. about those. And um, so can you describe some of those large scale installations for us? I mean, one of the ones I was reading about, is it the upcoming one that's 450 plates or is that one you just completed 
that so there's several large scale sort yeah. of mural scale installations um the first one was done at the high museum in atlanta and it's in their lobby so you walk by it to go to the museum's coat check and the beauty of ceramics is that it's not changed by light and it's not changed by weather and mm. it's not changed so you can put a painting a, a ceramic painting in a light filled lobby and it's not going to fade or get ruined by the uh, light uh-huh. where paintings will fabric will things deteriorate over paintings deteriorate and have to be conserved over time yeah. ceramics literally do not change like they do not change so i didn't realize this when i at the time when i was like setting out to do all this but it's like you're you're golden like <laughs> you have like the perfect material for it to be put somewhere that um nothing else really can be right Right. so or not many other materials can be um so the the high museum piece is 456 plates it's three stories tall so 27 feet high and 17 feet wide and i made it in my 350 square foot studio at home wow (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I had to break it up into like eight little sections and paint it each week one and hope that they all went. Cause I don't have like a three story tall wall to like right. try it out <laughs> before <Yeah. laughs> I installed it. Um, so I, that was like a moment where I was like, you, you know, you, you, I think as an artist, if you're not willing to take those risks of like, you know, I mean, I remember saying, yeah, 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 I can totally do this. And then I was like, can I do this? I just got the commission. Like, I don't really know what I'm doing. <laughs> like, you know, it's like you have to reinvent the wheel almost every time if you're going to push the edges of what you're doing at all. And it's like this constant like, well, here we go. You know? Yeah, we're going to put the links to um, th- these different exhibitions in our show notes so people can click on those and they can right. look at them. There's one that really stood out to me, I think, um, and I I dislike the color green. Let me just confess to you, um, but there was one installation you did that you looked are like in a green room. Right I now. know my <laughs> color <Yeah>. choice. <laughs> the studio is green, but um, there was this one. The one that stands out in my mind after kind of looking at all of the different ones you did was this one that looks like it's mostly like green or like teal colored plates. Um, and it's absolutely beautiful. Um, so, like, I'm, and that's the one in Atlanta, right, with the flowers. It might be. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, but I think my my point is these these installations are they're epic. Um, they look like you've been doing them an incredibly long time. Like, is this like an art form you want? Is this a f- form of expression you had been wanting to try? Is this something you'd always been thinking about or were you drawn into it? Like just by a singular opportunity. Um, that scale was, was sort of an opportunist in me. Um, but what I was up until that point, so I been making pots and asserting them as sort of paintings for a while. Um, starting after graduate school and with my, or starting really with my thesis exhibition and putting frames around pot functional pots, I realized that it would be really amazing if I could make an image come together with multiple plates or multiple pots. And, and I was still putting frames around them. And then I realized that I needed to figure out how to remove the frame and not have the frame be so 
point it like point so hard at them needing to be seen that way. And it would be a little more contemporary feeling. Um, and a little less crafty feeling if I was able to really have the imagery stand on its own on a grid or Mm -hmm. um, even off the grid, you know, so I started exploring all those different aspects of what I was doing. And the high museum curator, Sarah Schleining at the time, the curator of decorative arts and design, she did a lot of really amazing things for that museum. She's now moved to Houston, I think, but she saw my work at multiple art fairs and really wanted to do some kind of substantial showing of the work and keep a few pieces, you know, purchase a few pieces for the permanent collection at the high. And I think she was seeking out a young female ceramic artist or craft artist. And at the time, and so I actually on a, on a, on the risk that, it wouldn't pay off. I paid to go down to Atlanta and go through the collections with her, um, out of pocket. Like I paid to go down and and visit with her and we walked through the museum and she's like, you could do your, you could do some work in this space. And, you know, here's our collections and sort of walk through the museum and familiarize yourself because she knew that I was looking at historic imagery and re reinterpreting it and making, you know, derivative work, if you will. Um, of that historic imagery and sort of recontextualizing it in a new mm-hmm. way with these plate paintings. And she wanted me to reflect their permanent collections in some way if in a contemporary work. And um, that would be such a great service to the museum and their, his, their historic collections, but also you know, to add contemporary work that, that encourages people to look more, more to their permanent collections, maybe aspects of the collections that have been overlooked. And, so then she's like at the end of the um I am pay did the architecture at the I believe it was I am pay who did the um architecture at the high museum. I'd have to double check that. But the architect had designed this wall by the coat check that was huge, but there's a window opposite it and then a reflecting pool the same size as it and the window, the wall, the window and the reflection pool are all the same size. So you have this sort of wall that is reflected in the reflecting pool at night outside and this window that's in and out. And it was like, she was like, or you could do something here. And I was like, are you insane? (laughs) That's huge. (laughs) I was like, what would I do there? And then I like could not stop thinking about the opportunity to like go big or go home kind of. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I can totally do something there. (laughs) And then, you know, like six years later, it's still installed there. It's like become iconic of the museum. People think I'm from Atlanta. (laughs) They're like, you're Atlanta's prize. I'm like, yeah, I'm a Southern from Vermont and Massachusetts. (laughs) That's funny. Um, But I, you know, I did a huge service for the museum and pointing back at this like weird little English ceramics collection that they had that I reflected. And, um, it's become a cut, like sort of a favorite piece of Atlanta. And so it's interesting to think that, I mean, I took a major leap there and I was like, well, if you're really offering that huge mural size wall, I think I can. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then boy, I'll tell you, did I send that postcard for that opening to my professors at the university of Colorado <laughs> and was like, look, there's yeah. plates in a museum and they're paintings. And you know, how do you like them apples? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did it. <laughs> So, 
you know, it's nothing like someone telling me I can't do something. I'm like, mm, I think I'm going to go do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> I was thinking a little bit about what you said before about when you started painting on pots and that somehow began to spark what you think of, what we think of as your kind of aesthetic, right? Um, mm-hmm. Is there something about like painting on the 3D object itself in, in terms of the creative process that inspires something in you versus like doing it on a piece of paper beforehand and saying, I'm going to slap that on a pot. Like, do you start fresh with the piece, like the, as a blank slate and say like, see, I want to see what I can do with this, this mug or this, this plate or this cake stand or like, how, how does that work when you're looking at this blank 3d object that you want to begin transforming with with your aesthetic. Walk us through that a little bit. Um, well, I, I started sort of with two different aspects of what I, my process being um, sort of focused on the one-of-a-kind art objects that we've been talking a lot about, the plate paintings, if you will. Yeah. Um, or sort of one process. And then designing is a different process. Um, so when I'm making a mug for reproduction for a factory to manufacture, um, I, ideally I'm sitting down and making a one-to-one prototype for the factory to copy. So if you can imagine you're in China and someone hands you a piece of paper with some like notes on it that have been translated from English to Chinese, most likely there's going to be some mistakes or misinterpretation and like, it's probably not going to go great the first time. But if you can hand someone an object and say, make that, it's pretty easy to kind of unpack. Or even if you hand it with them to them with a few of those translated notes, they at least have the like scale and placement and feel mm-hmm. and size and like color and everything right in front of them. So I try really hard to make things by hand and then hand them off to be reproduced. More and more, I find myself drawing and painting on paper and understanding the object and the limitations of manufacturing and handing designs that are conceptual over. And they are typically capable of, I've got a couple factories that we're sort of good rapport with now and they understand the aesthetic as well, I think, and they kind of understand what, what I'm doing. And so it, it's worked really pretty well yeah. to do that over time. However, it's always more successful and the pots are always better when I hand them a one-to-one prototype and it's, and it's when I make something that's got a die cut shape or something that's a little bit different, it really goes so much better when I can hand them that pot that, so a lot of people make the mistake of, you know, like um, other potters will come into my studio or visit with me or talk with me casually at a conference or something. And I'll be like, so how is it like not making things anymore? And I'm like, what? (laughs) I'm, totally making things. I'm just not making everything I'm selling. There's a factory that's making them for me after I make the one the same way that you would make pots in your studio and hand them off. So it's an interesting misunderstanding about like what the process is in designing for industry. Cause it's really no different for me than making pots. Um, the way I was as a studio potter is that every time I make a pot, it gets reproduced and thousands get made instead of me making the thousands. I'm an idea factory rather than a personal mm-hmm. factory making things over and over. And 
I try to find, you know, like the best selling pots have always been the ones that have a little bit of hand touch on them or like some kind of like maybe it's a hand painted rim or the color is applied by hand or, you know, something along those lines. So it's anytime there's sort of that human contact with the pottery still, even if it's not my contact, it's still reads and and, and adds value, I think, mm-hmm. to the to the pot itself. Thinking about evolving towards um and being partly an idea factory right like when do you begin to make that transition to saying i would like to put my designs on this other stuff like bed sheets or like whatever whatever wallpaper wallpaper, like wherever we wherever we find your designs like when does that start to come into play for you um, so for me, it was early on with anthropology, they sort of realized that I was doing, because I was able to do the drawings and paintings that I was doing on the ceramic work on paper as well, I wasn't just, I was multifaceted in my ability to translate the aesthetic to paper, which meant to anything, really, it, you know, I, so I had to teach my, I joked for a long time, like the first four or five years I worked with anthropology, I was at the school of anthropology and I was like getting my degree <laughs> in a year or two. And I was going to like graduate and like, <laughs> and it's exactly what happened. It just took, you know, 10 years instead of four or five. <laughs> but I, you know, for me with them, the, the like risk and reward, it was just such low risk for me to figure it out that you know, if we wanted to make matching tea towels, it was like an easy thing for me to think about and conceptualize because it's still an object, right? Like, it's not like, I still approach everything like it's an object. I was taught as a, to be a designer, like think about things three-dimensionally. So even if it's clothing, I'm thinking about the fact that you're like, you've got a front and a back and a side, Mm -hmm. and it's not just like, we're not just going to like slap something on there. It's going to have to work right sort of more holistically. And so I think that's the, I think that's the thing that has allowed me to be a, a little different than some other designers or surface designers out there who pattern slap. They call it pattern slapping when you just like put a put mm-hmm. something on something without really considering the full object and the fact that you have like I'm known for beautiful bottoms of my pots and like not not all of them have it but you know I think about an inside rim and an outside rim or like a little detail on a handle mm-hmm. um and those are things that just you wouldn't necessarily think of and I think it really sets them apart yeah design design is so fascinating early on Steve Jobs um who I hope everybody knows was one of the <laughs> early founders and designers in Apple like he would insist that the insides of computers look aesthetically pleasing. And like the engineers and um, the people building the stuff would be like, who cares? Nobody's ever going to see inside of a computer. And he would be like, no, I know. I'm, I know it won't look nice. I want it, you know, like it was this, it's like this insistence on, mm-hmm. um, I, I guess I'll just call it design integrity, you know, like thinking about those elements. Um, um, do you have to have a facility with digital tools too, like digital design tools, like Photoshop, Illustrator? Like, do those come into play in your work? Because I think maybe a lot of people wouldn't think that somebody who works in ceramics um, would have to use digital tools like that. Well, I think because, so like when I applied for graduate school, I applied with slides. 
<laughs> dates me. Um, <laughs> like PowerPoint see. slides, not not Google slides. No, right? no, no, no. She like, means like, like slides. Physical oh, slides. <laughs> <laughs> when in a carousel. Yeah. Like oh, jeez. Like, you know. Yeah, I'm old. S- sorry okay. for that additional opportunity to date you even further. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay because I think it, while I was there, actually, yeah, it, it switched over to. Um, DV, you know, DVDs or applications on CD and digital portfolios. And then, you know, the genius of the internet, like you can upload it, you know, you don't even mm-hmm. have to mail a physical CD that could get scratched in the, pro- you know, like you could actually just like put it up on the internet and like have a portfolio, like a submission in one place. Like I, I envy the kids who are applying now because it's so much easier. You put one portfolio up and you just hit send to all the different, yeah. <laughs> different colleges and universities instead of like, Replica. I mean, it cost mm-hmm. me like hundreds of dollars to apply for school. Yeah. Anyway, I, I'm digressing from the real point of this, which is that during that time, we also had to, I had took uh, like code, like an HTML code writing class and learning how to write, like make your own website because, you know, as an artist, you end up in an entrepreneur, you're like an entrepreneur, really. Mm-hmm. You have to know how to be a photographer, take your own photos take your make your own website you know use photoshop to adjust the photos that you took so crappy because you're not a good photographer so you're like trying to figure all of that out so photoshop was something that we kind of had to familiarize ourselves with in order to be able to resize photos for submissions to exhibitions or to send for catalogs or like, you know, constantly being asked for images of your work, you have to be able to resize them for what people need and understand how that works. So I had a very intimate understanding of, of Photoshop, but like for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Um, and I never learned illustrator. Um, I'm still like illustrator illiterate. Um, but I have figured out InDesign because I've had to write my own, figure out my own catalogs and my own books of, you know, work mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, and, but Photoshop, it's like, you know, insanely amazing what you can do with it. So, but the beauty of it is that I think, and what translates and and sort of again makes my work more unique than someone who does understand illustrator or who was trained as an illustrator in college and knows how to digitally generate artwork is that it is still generated by hand and then I scan it and I adjust it or I'll make it you know into a repeat pattern but only using like basic photoshop tools Um, and I might move things around or reconstruct things but like generally speaking I'm creating artwork on paper and then scanning those components in and making it into something that applies to other substrates. So sometimes I run into issues with um, factories that require Illustrator. There's usually a workaround um, or some way to figure it out. And it's kind of amazing what you can do with just something that simple. But again, like I'd say, like um, figuring out how to m- translate what I do on clay onto paper and then figuring out how to retain that sort of feeling and look has been a, a big part of what's made it possible for me to continue doing other things aside from just ceramic. Would you, would you ever use something like a 3d printer or something like that? Have you ever thought about that? 
Um, I think that would be really interesting, but it's probably faster for me to just, because I can make things out of clay. It's like, you know, so, I mean, it's interesting though that you say that because I just sent off two prototypes that I made by hand and they're kind of like wonkety and like my (laughs) handmade things Mm -hmm. um, to a mold company in Pennsylvania to fabricate good prototypes to make the mold like so they can actually like make the mold work right off of my (laughs) my, like (laughs) crappy sketch and like kind of like this you know like sending them an example of what i want but like may you make it better and then send me the mold um so i'll pay for them to fabricate you know a better um working prototype so that i and these are castings for my my fine artwork that i'm trying to work some more sculptural forms into but i'm paying pretty dearly to have someone else mm-hmm. do that because i'm not you know i know where my limitations are so yeah, yeah. um <laughs> but it's funny too i should also say as a side note like i think the yeah. one thing that's stopping me from becoming like a full-time professor at this point and or at least the last time i was applying for jobs was that I did not have, uh, I wasn't well-versed in 3D printing. And that's something that's like pretty much essentially required of any three-dimensional faculty these days. Huh, oh, wow. no kidding. That's do you want to be a, do you want to be a professor no. at some point? No. Okay. <laughs> oh, oh yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, think it would be really, yeah. I think there's a chapter in my life mm-hmm. that I, I taught at RISD for a while. Yeah. And I've taught at um, Dartmouth College and um, local community college, and and I've lectured at like h- hundreds of universities mm-hmm. and things like that. But I love teaching, and that's like a part of what I do that I really, really enjoy. Um, and I I miss that aspect of it. it's always what I thought I would end up doing. Um, yeah. But then I end up making more money off of selling my work. So I don't, you know, the, the world had other things in mind. But um, I, you know, I haven't put that idea down totally now. Cool. At, um, at the top of your website, you have the words um, "woman owned and proud." So <laughs> I wanted to ask you um, what it means to you to be a smart, strong, and successful woman in the art and business world. Um, I think it sort of tied in with some other things that have been um, an agenda for me. Um, I think the fact that I've never had to borrow money. I think I borrowed money from my parents once to pay some taxes. I paid them back like within (laughs) six months. (laughs) Um, and I've, I've really never had to go to a bank for money to, or, or get it. I've written grants for my fine artwork, but I rarely get them. Um, but I really feel like it's, a point of pride that I've kind of done this with very little. Um, I've, I've come from a privileged background and my parents have given me support occasionally at times when it's been, and you know, I mean like a thousand, like a wheel or like right. $500, <laughs> you know, I'm not talking about like, you know, a, a trust fund um, or anything. Um, but I think building this business on my own with predominantly women like you, John, taking care of some of the parts mm-hmm. of my business and all the, all the subcontractors just so happen to be women. It's not something that I necessarily like pointedly set out to do, but it's just sort of what's happened. And I think it's because we're all supporting each other and, and these sort of creative businesses. Uh, And I'm so proud of the fact that we're all doing that. And so, so collectively and supportively of each other, it's it's really neat. Um, I feel a lot of pride in that. I think some of it has to do with, 
my dad not thinking that I could make it. And it's sort of like, <laughs> well, here I am and I'm right. doing it. And I want people to know that it's a women-owned business and that they are supporting a woman. I feel like more and more, especially through the pandemic, um, some things have really come into sharp focus for me about priorities. And all along, one of the things that I've had a hard time with is putting down a, a handmaking career um, for a career with industry. And I have really come to understand industry as another tool for making a living or another tool for making your work more accessible and sort of almost democratizing it so that people can afford it. Right. And making mm-hmm. it more accessible. But one of the things about that is the sort of, uh, you know, you know, slave labor economy, essentially like we are ma- a lot of this is made in China or abroad in some capacity um, and imported to the U S and every time I work with a company, I ask them some pretty tough questions about how they are auditing factories and what they feel like they're doing to maintain like an ethical, like, are they paying living wages in these factories? Are they, you know, upholding local labor laws? Are they, you know, like this is really important to me that, that mm-hmm. they, feel, that I feel like if someone's answering me and they've never been asked that question before and they're not like, huh, yes. Or they're like, I'm going to look into that. You know, like I can tell really quickly if someone's being honest with me or if they're being shady, (laughs) you know, or if they just don't know and they're not willing to find out or if they're like giving me a sort of a, what I think I want to, they think I want to hear as an answer. And I've learned a lot about the sort of industrial world of making. And I think, you know, some of this is grounded in my parents' values. Obviously they were like back to the earth hippies who (laughs) wanted organic farming. So I was like, you know, for me, I think what I've really been interested in is continuing the studio pottery tradition of the handmade aesthetic that I'm grounded in and was trained by. And, and to take that to some degree to the menu, those values and that sort of a lot of the motivation and integrity for making things by hand to the factory world. And that means trying to ethically sourced goods, right? Like whether it's a woman owned factory or, um, uh, the materials are from a woman own, you know, like a women run, uh, business, or I'm keeping it within the U S and paying a little extra, or I'm sourcing it as sustainably as possible. So it's like fair trade candles or organic cotton and pushing the factories that I work with and the companies that I collaborate with to, do that. And only in the last year have a year and a half, I've I've met a woman who runs this company called to the market, um, which she was a, it's sort of a long story, but basically she was working for the McCain foundation on human trafficking and sex labor, sex workers Mm -hmm. um, internationally. And she really found that what she could do to stop this chain of labor source or sex trafficking and and human trafficking from happening is to, is embetterment through employment and like supporting the organizations and, and factories that were hiring women out of the, to get them out of those situations in order to be able to maintain a life, you know, like a life for themselves outside of men. Right. Essentially like keeping the money in with women meant that children were being fed and homes were being taken care of. 
not to demonize men, but to just sort of say that, that for those women, it was really empowering to have a, a better labor situation. Mm-hmm. So she decided to come home and set up a business that connected industry or like retail in this country with a bunch of vetted factories that she knew were doing this work already internationally and continue to do the work of vet auditing other factories and connecting people with ethical and sustainable sourcing. And so suddenly I can go to these factories that I work with or these companies that I license my artwork to and say, okay, well, I know that you've said that this isn't really possible for you, but it's like totally not true. And I can tell you here is a resource mm-hmm. for you to like right. go, you know, like I've done my homework and I'm giving you a resource for it. And now you can't tell me that it's not possible to do this on some level. And even just asking that question or pushing them to do that has been sort of radical and um, now it's sort of gotten to the point where I'm like, okay, I'm going to do it and show you that you can do it and that the customer wants it. Yeah. And it's like, it's, so it's like, there's, it's undeniable. Mm-hmm. Like you have to do this. <laughs> uh, so I'm trying really hard to sort of be super realistic about rewriting the book on that. Um, and, and shifting, their understanding of what people value on the consumer end, because I think it's for some reason people feel like price is always going to be King. And I think for some people it will be, they'll choose the cheaper thing always. But I'll tell you when I'm standing in target and it's like, that is a fair trade glass and that is not, I'm going to go with the one that's fair trade certified. Yeah. Aesthetics aside, I'm probably just going to, I mean, cause you, wherever you put your money, you're voting for that. Right. right? That's right. So, Mm -hmm. I want people to be really clear that maybe we're not 100% there yet, but we're working really, really hard to try to change this industry that's way behind the times on that. That's great. So Mm -hmm. it's a very long answer to why I have women owned on the the banner of my website, but I think it's all tied into all Mm -hmm. those values. And it's a really blunt way of saying, hey, you found someone who cares about this. Yeah. (laughs) No, I liked seeing it there. You don't see that on a lot of websites. No. You know, I think mm-hmm. it's I think it's a good thing to know for all the reasons Molly mm-hmm. just told us about. So yeah. um did you have any do you have any thoughts about no, that? No, I just you know, like it always strikes me because Molly is the most business savvy artist I've ever met in my entire life. And I tell her that all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like, you know, we work with numbers. I mean, I help her with numbers and you know, she yeah. always gets it. You know, like you always get it. So it's one of my things that I love about you. <laughs> oh, they've they've changed how I think about where to put my energy. Yeah. Honestly. Really interesting to have a grip on that. And actually I think Shopify's platform and their analytics has really helped me make some decisions too. Yeah. That way. Yeah. So thinking about the times we find ourselves in now, has the COVID nineteen pandemic impacted you as an artist uh it certainly has impacted my time yeah (laughs) i mean i your parents i'm a parent Mm -hmm. um uh but i think it has brought into focus a bunch of things that i really want to like the more the moral and ethical underpinnings of what i'm doing as a business um have become more important um not that they weren't important all along but even more so like it's just really like why am I doing this what's the end game 
and it's just been a time of reflection, honestly, and a time to sort of regroup and think a little bit about how I want to progress with this business over time. Um, and it's also given me some room to think about priorities in my fine artwork too. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to be in more museums when I'm, when I'm in a museum, when my work's in a museum, it's for public consumption mm-hmm. and there's no often not money tied to that. It's often a free museum or a museum that's, you know, affordable or they have programs for children or whatever, whatever it is. Um, and that feels like a lot more of sort of true to my interests in marrying fine art with a functional, mm-hmm. you know, this, this, the sort my, my mom and dad and represented in one, <laughs> I've got to, I've got to rewind whenever I get this recording and like yeah. transcribe that because it was so good. Um, but I think for me, it's been interesting to like, Honestly, I feel like manifesting, like it's my, me, it's tacky. I don't know, or like too new agey of me, but I really feel like you can talk things into existence and manifest what you put your energy. Like, it's just sort of like when you focus on it, mm-hmm. the world, you know, you're, you're putting it out there and people will respond to it. And it's like, whether you're <laughs> noticing it or not notice, I mean, it's yeah. like when you're pregnant and everyone's pregnant, you're like, everyone's pregnant. Why is mm-hmm. everyone pregnant? That's right. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think it's so weird. And so it's like, when you're thinking about moral and ethical interests, you're like, suddenly everyone needs that. And you're like, Oh wow, everyone's responding to this, you know, or, you know, like I kind of been sort of saying to myself, wow, my, you know, my relationship with my gallery is great, but I've been the one that's gotten all these museum commissions myself because I've developed rapport and relationships with the Mm -hmm. curators. Right. I'm like, gosh, I really should be working on that. And then my friend, I had traded with a friend of mine recently, who's a glass artist. And she was like, I've been zooming in front of your piece installed in my house. And all these curators have been like, Ooh, ah, who is that? What's that? And I literally got a call from the Renwick at the Smithsonian like oh, wow. a week later and now I'm like what? talking with them tomorrow. About <laughs> it's amazing. Something. You know, so it's like, yeah. you never know like what. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, oh, that's so awesome. So I think, I yeah. think what it's done is sort of given me room to um, mm-hmm. step back for a minute. And how often do we have an objective mm-hmm. perspective yeah. on our, our lives and what our, our interests are. And I think I'm so think there have been so many silver linings for yeah. me, um, in, in all of this and, it's, and, and the time with my daughter has been a really mm-hmm. big one. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. All right. I'm going to switch to some sillier questions. We're going to let <laughs> okay. you off. We're going to let you off the hook. Um, okay. um so the, this isn't the silliest question, but <laughs> I, I'm curious if you, if you could quantify it, like how many pieces have you broken in your ceramics career like oh my god thousands Thousands. yeah and what do you do with them when they break do they go back into like the ceramics hopper or something like can you reuse (laughs) them ceramics hopper yeah this is actually it's really that's like there there's a a stage where you can like recycle it and and you can put it back into use um you know, it's like super crazy. So, I mean, if it's been fired once or at all, you tend to throw it away or you can mm-hmm. use it for testing on later or something like that. But Kohler, I did a residency at the Kohler factory, which is like toilets and sinks. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. mm-hmm. They have an artist residency program. And right out of undergrad, I was still pregnant with my daughter in 2009. I was there doing a residency 
in the program. And they told me they have a 60% loss rate. Oh my, oh my God. God. Means that 60% of what they make ends up in a dumpster wow. outside of their building. Yeah. And then they like chop it up and use it for roads. Oh. Okay. So cool. That's I good. was like, what? But 60% of what they make is a That's loss. Crazy. And I, yeah. and I wonder if there's something unique about this art form too. And that, uh, we'll just call it a fact that some, you know, things break and they're fragile. That's the medium. If it like mm-hmm. somehow, um, builds up your resiliency. Cause it, like but the tumbling for sure. <laughs> yeah. Like, cause you always know, like this thing could fall on the floor and shatter to a million pieces. Yeah. And, but you know what? You sit back down and you start over again. Mm-hmm. You know, well, I don't and know. there's this, other thing that kind of ha- we talk about factor a lot mm. in ceramic or in in art. It's an arty word. Um, it's a, a word used elsewhere too. But I love the idea of factor, and that's sort of when the process or the the item, the object, or the process itself create is part of the process of creating. Mm-hmm. And that's the kiln, right? It's like when you put something. So I'm painting on these plates or I'm working and there I can kind of predict and pretty much control what I'm doing except that I can't really because I put it in a kiln and maybe it cracks so I have to repaint that plate or maybe I mean I would say like probably 10% of what I do ends up having to be replaced like a plate needs to be replaced or Mm -hmm. if I'm really pushing the edges of a process or trying something new I've definitely had pieces where I've had to make 50% of the plates again um, because I'm trying to do weird things with the gold or something like that. Yeah. But, um, and, and it is so humbling. Cause you're like, I just put, you know, like 90 hours of work into that. And I'm mm-hmm. literally just throwing this in the dumpster. <laughs> like yeah. I can't do anything with it. Um, unless you know someone who's a mosaic artist that I can hook up with sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but I think that the thing is that, you know, I think it's one of the things that I had to educate my gallery about, like basically that when I paint these pieces, I paint three or four layers to make the color work or I'm painting and then I'm painting it again, putting it in the kiln and then I fire it. And then I hope again, the next time I add gold or some metal layer to it, I have to fire it again. And so at each stage that it's like rife with opportunity for something to go wrong. Yeah. And um, I think it is super humbling. And I think it's like, things don't always come out the way you expect them to and that's where the factor it's like this beautiful thing that you it's not all about you right <laughs> like at the end of the day it's the process and some you have to let go a certain expectation of it being exactly what you want it to be and i'm not sure that other art materials have that luxury yeah like painter you can always go back and work a painting and i would be like one of those people that would work it to death you know like you've got to stop at some point and there's no you don't have to stop but in ceramic there's a point where you can't go back in and do mm-hmm. anything anymore. You're stuck with whatever it is. And you kind of have to like sit yeah. with that and be okay with it. And I think that that's, there's something about that in the material that's just so satisfying and like super frustrating. All, all <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, that's a great answer. Thank you. Um, what's the strangest thing somebody's asked you to make? Oh my God. People come like just, <laughs> Has somebody asked the, what I really want to ask you is, has anybody asked you to make an urn? <laughs> oh, totally. You know, one of, actually one of my cousins had me ash becomes glaze when you fire it. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. So I had a cousin who had a beloved sort of husky dog Mm -hmm. and she sent me some of her dog's ash to melt onto a bead so that she could wear the bead as a jewelry. It's pretty intense, Mm -hmm. but I did, I did it. (laughs) Wow. Um, but yeah, I'd say that's one of the like more intense requests, but like whenever people find out you're a potter or a designer, they're like, you know what you should do. And it's like, you're like, Right there. Yeah. <laughs> Just stop. Right yeah. There. That's great. Because <laughs> everyone has a designer in them. And I've definitely had people like say, you should make this crazy coffee contra, you know, mm-hmm. thing. Like, and you're like, oh, okay, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, you should just take a ceramics class and go make that for yourself. Yeah. It's a genius idea. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> um, how do you feel about the movie Ghost and the song Unchained Melody? <laughs> I love parodies on that. In fact, the most recent one was Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. And that was like, I mean, it's like, that is a clip that's never going to go away. Um, When that movie came out, apparently like I'll, I'll never forget my professor saying that there was this like intense resurgence of, or like surge of, of interest in like extracurricular clay classes because Mm -hmm. it was like, this they were all gonna have this fantasy of their own like New York loft with a potter's wheel in the middle yep. of it. Um and Potter Swayze <laughs> with his unbuttoned pants like mm-hmm. approaching. But um no, I think it was like a proud moment for ceramics yeah. <laughs> in the media. <laughs> and there's like a never ending meme that continues yeah. throughout. I mean, I just it's like what someone's gotta come up with a net. I mean, maybe it's me and my script about the, you know, arcanum and the history of <laughs> the sordid history of ceramics and porcelain. I don't know. Maybe Yeah. It's a great scene. I mean, you know, oh. it's Anyways, oh my God. iconic. Yeah. Everyone knows yeah. it. It's like you can't <laughs> yeah. unsee that once you've seen it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, what what should we be looking forward to um, from Molly Hatch, um, the person, mm. the brand? What do we have to look uh, forward to? We have, believe it or not, done a hard left and par- partnered with a, an apparel company mm. in the UK, and we have an apparel line launching this summer. No, let's give you one of these. (laughs) (laughs) Very exciting. Um, And it was just one of those moments where it really, it was a good cultural fit and it was sort of the perfect brand to work with um, from a bunch of angles, including sustainability and ethical production and all that. Um, So that's, that's really exciting. And I have a huge exhibition that's Pew funded in uh, the fall of 2021 um, I almost said 2011. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do that too. <laughs> um, I don't know why. That's an interesting Freudian slip. I I do wish I was 10 years younger. That would be kind of interesting. <laughs> um, but uh, it's it's the clay studio in Philadelphia. For those of you who are clay people or Philly people, it's a big um, clay organization, nonprofit organization that's moving. And they've been a big part of my career all throughout. And um, I'm part of one of three artists who got a grant um, through the um, Clay Studio and the Pew um, Foundation. I think Pew, I don't know what the official title would be, but uh, to make an exhibition for the, they have a grand reopening of, um, or opening of a new building in a new neighborhood. And um, it's kind of exciting. So I'm making a huge body of work for that. And there's a symposium and all kinds of fun stuff coming down the pipeline, but that's awesome. I'm 
posting lots of process images and um, I hope people want apparel. I have a feeling everyone's going to need new clothes after the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> Absolutely. True story. <laughs> story. And um, but Jen, you just need to let me know when <laughs> it comes out, which <laughs> of them you want, because I think you're going to look so good. And all Sweet. <laughs> um, anything you want to tell us before we have two more questions we're going to ask you and then we'll be done. I promise. Um, but anything, anything else you wanted to tell us? No, I think I'm, okay. I think I'm... that, that, that was a lot. And thank you. I, I, I learned so much. Um, but these two questions, we might learn more, right? Stomping oh Jen. Gosh. These are the, these are the best questions. We always save them for the last Um So what do you like to do for fun when you're not, um, you know, doing the the Molly Hatch um, art and business stuff. Um, well, the pan my biggest pandemic hobby has been um, pretty boring, but it's been working out. It's kind of I a few years ago I went. My daughter did Girls on the Run. Oh yeah, and I, I turned forty, and it was like this amazing program. She did it for a few years, and I was running with her, and I was so glad every time she wanted to walk. <laughs> 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 and I don't think of my, I've always been an active person and I was like, uh Oh, I can't even run a 5k with my like eight year olds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I stepped it up a little then. And three years later, I'm like feeling really great, but I just want to make sure that I'm like able to keep up with my kid who's about to be a teenager and like taller than me, I think. Mm-hmm. So I'm in trouble, yep. <laughs> but um, I'm, also a telemark skier and um it's a big passion of my husband's and mine that's awesome yeah so we both um spend our winters doing that and um i've been known to knit a few things and Mm. explore other crafts i also tried doing some um, macrame during Mm -hmm. (laughs) during quarantine i got kind of a slow start but yeah i'm i'm interested in like other exploring other things I just don't have all the time in the world but I also really love cooking uh, a lot and I think that's like the biggest secret about potters and people who make functional wear is that usually they like to eat like a lot like Like we really like to eat like eating is is just as much of a passion as making the things that you eat off Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. so (laughs) that's awesome all right, last question, oh. um, and you can what? He loves this question. It's a great question. He makes such a build up to it. Too. No, and you can you can <laughs> interpret plays this awful music. You can interpret this any way you want. What have you experienced that you cannot easily explain? <laughs> Here comes the music. <laughs> I like. I feel like I should have been able to think about this beforehand. I'm sorry. Some people say that. Spring it on people. I do think there's a lot of synchronicity in the world. I honestly feel like my career is unexplainable. Like Mm. I really think like every time I start to question any aspect of it and think, ah, I gotta drop some. Something's gotta give. I've got to figure out. You know, the world puts another like the Renwick. Like I literally was like, oh gosh, things aren't really going and. Like mm-hmm. the Smithsonian calls. It's like That's what? Crazy. Okay. Yeah. Like, all right. Like I I think that um but I think that also meeting my husband, I'd have to say, is like I just like how on earth do we meet the person that's just re- I mean, like he and I have been together since we were twenty five. Yeah. We're so great for each other. 
I'm so thankful for my partnership with him. His dad was a pottery collector and English. Huh. Like it couldn't like and he came from like a Boston <laughs> family. Like it was like what? Meant like, to be. Yeah. Like totally. Like That's yeah. that synchronicity you were talking about. Yeah. And yeah. I love mur- murdery anything too. Like I'd have to say like I I am like a like I, all the murder podcasts, oh, like all true the true crime, oh, me anything. Too. Like I'm so like anytime anything slightly murdery comes out on Netflix, I'm like all up in it. Do you like, listen to True Crime Garage by any chance? No, that's I mean, a great maybe one. There are one. so many. <laughs> yeah, I know like, there are billions. I think I secretly need to unpack. Like I just need to know why people do the crazy things they do. That is such like a yeah. thing that people love. Yeah. I think it's because you do it's like how do you ever get yourself into a position where you're gonna like slash someone like that? Mm-hmm. Like what on earth would ever drive like it's just so yeah. foreign. I'm actually reading this book by a guy. Um it's a kind of a explanation about serial killers and how he got into this is he was a movie producer of some kind or a television producer, and he realized he had been in like incredibly close proximity. And, and these overlapping periods to these two like oh, horrifying weird. serial killers. Yeah. And it got him like really interested anyways. Like, and he was saying like, what is it about me that made me potentially get in their crosshairs? Like as a victim, Ooh. he was like trying to like unpack it from that angle, which I thought was really interesting. Anyways. Um, Sorry, this isn't for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, it's totally. I'm like, let's go. Let's yeah. talk about it. Yeah. So exciting. <laughs> Molly Hatch. I think I, think I deeply appreciate it. And I'm going to, might have to come back to you on, yeah. on the, the strange things thing. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody's welcome. To oh yeah. Come back with these questions. Yes. Um, yeah. If you guys want to chat up about murder. Oh true yeah. Crime <laughs> stuff. I can tell already when we have dinner someday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, so tell me about your favorite. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I can go on and on. Um, First, I want to say, Molly Hatch, thank you for appearing on the Soft Serve podcast. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I learned a lot, um, yep. and I enjoyed I enjoyed our conversation. So, thanks well, for being I'd say here. That was a, a two way street. I now have a complete explanation for why I make work. So, <laughs> I think this was pretty productive for me as well. Yep, and all of our content is Creative Commons, so you can take that and oh, you can you. do whatever you want with it. Um, so, um, Stomping Jen, yes, thank you. Oh, thank you once again. You are oh. you are the anchor. Um, to yes. my co-hosting. Oh, I'm so glad to be so of thank service. You. I appreciate you being here. Okay. Um, to our fans, to our listeners, future fans. There may be listeners who are not yet fans. Stomping right. Jen. We're gonna reel in the Molly Hatch uh, fan club. That's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I actually have one. Yep. Thank I'm you for that. listening. Yes. yes. Um, if you haven't already, please subscribe, download our episodes, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Mm-hmm. That always helps. Yep. yep. Share with a friend. That's important too. That's right. And finally, Stomping Jen, yes. anything else? Uh, we love you. Who do we love? Our listeners. That's right. And wear a mask and get yeah. vaccinated and all those things. Yep. All of those things. So, um, Without further ado, I'll just say thank you again um, to Molly. I'll say all those things you just said to our listeners, and uh, we'll end on how we usually end, which is, bye now. Bye now.
This world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate. Those who have freedom will understand also its heavy responsibility. That all who are insensitive to the needs of others will learn charity, and that the sources, scourges of poverty, disease, and ignorance will be made disappear from the earth. And that in the goodness of time, all peoples will come to live together in a peace guaranteed by the binding force of mutual respect and love. I shall never cease to do what little I can to help the world advance along that road.